Good to see you guys this morning. My name's Kyle. I serve as lead pastor here. If you're visiting today, I want to say thanks for being here. Glad you're here to worship with us. I'm going to have you turn to your Bibles, uh, to two places in your Bibles today. Uh, first, we'll look at a verse in Romans 11. We'll look at verse 36 here in a moment. <clears throat> and then the bulk of our reading really will come from Genesis chapter 3. Uh, but you can look at, you know, you can kind of hold your finger at one if you want. I'll read a couple of verses from there. <clears throat> but largely we'll be in Genesis chapter 3 as we expound on what we're going to see in Romans 11. So they, they are going to go together. Uh, but today what we're doing is we're starting a new series. The series is called What Happens When We Worship. And so in this series over the next 13 weeks, we're going to examine the theology of worship, the anatomy of worship, and what we should do in response to those things that we see in God's Word. We're going to look at how do we worship, but what happens when we worship. Today, our topic is created to worship. You have been created to worship. You are created for worship. You are wired for worship. And so I want to talk to you about the origin, the purpose, the means of worship, and, uh, and help that inform the lives that we live, hopefully, in worship to the Lord. And so if you would, would you stand with me as we read Romans 11.36 aloud? God's Word says in Romans 11.36, For from Him, that is from the Lord, and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. This is God's holy Word. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. And a verse as simple as only several words says so much about why we're here, what our purpose is, how we got here. So Lord, it is my hope, it is my prayer that today we would see from your word uh, that we were created for worship. Uh, and in many ways, we are always worshiping. But Father, as you are well aware, at times we get our worship wrong. At times we worship in ways that we like. We worship things that we think are worth worshiping. And so our worship is misplaced, it's misunderstood at times, um, it's sinful. So, Lord, we ask that you would help us to regain, as we go through this series over the next few weeks, regain an understanding of what biblical worship is, that you have not been silent on worship, but that you have spoken clearly from your word on how we are to worship. And so, Lord, help us to grasp that vision, help us to understand your word, help us to apply it. And so, Lord, we, uh, in that prayer, we are desperate for your Holy Spirit to give us insight, to give us understanding and knowledge and wisdom on how to apply it. Lord, we need you to sanctify our hearts and minds by your Spirit through the washing of your Word today. So we are dependent upon you as we open up your Word, as we read from it, as we see it. And so Lord, I pray that you help me along in this. Help me to proclaim the excellencies of Christ today. That having heard today, the people do not hear Kyle, they hear Christ preach. 
that his word is a balm unto their souls, that it's not me. Lord, help us to be devoted fully to your son, Jesus. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So when I say worship, which I've said multiple times already, it's most likely that you envision like the singing part of the service, right? When we say worship, often we think that worship is, it's our singing. And that's really by design over the last several decades. And depending on your church background, you may even envision like private singing to God in your home or maybe even in your chair at church. Uh, You know, we're kind of raised at times to think that worship happens right there in your seat or your pew, and it's just between you and the Lord, and, you know, really it's all about your experience. These understandings are the result of what we might call the contemporary worship movement, which is really popular. (laughs) It's done a lot for church growth. It's done a lot for um, modernizing things and not that everything that's come out of it has been wrong, but much of it is misplaced by design. And there's really a long history that we, we don't have time to get into fully today, and so I'd like to just provide a brief explanation of the roots of contemporary worship. Contemporary worship, the idea that it's about your singing and that the singing must move you to some emotional feeling, kind of stir you up in some way, the roots of that are Pentecostalism and revivalism. They're birthed out of those things. Now, the goal in Pentecostalism or Pentecostal worship is to provide the worshiper with a personal experience with God, a personal encounter with God. And so you'll hear that language often, that you come and see the presence of God, come experience the presence of God with us. Come experience a move of the Spirit. God is on the move here. God is doing great things in this worship service. You know, you don't want to miss this. And that is, its purpose is to stir up the emotions of the worshiper so much so that he or she feels like they have worshiped God. There's gooseys and there's Uh, chills, and there's uh, palpitating heartbeats, and maybe sweat. Revivalism is really much in the same vein. They kind of entered the scene really around the same time. It was in the 1800s. And revivalism got its jump start with a man named Charles Finney. He's really kind of the founder of revivalism in the 1800s. Finney's purpose, Finney was a, a traveling preacher, and he would preach revival services. And and his purpose for these revival services was to stir up the emotions of those in attendance, so much so that it forced them to make a decision for Jesus. They might call these salvations, they might call them decisions, but it was decisionism. It was just largely based on uh, their emotions. He was playing on the emotions of the congregation in song. How many of you know that song moves you, right? Right? Like you hear a song and you go back to moments in your life where you first heard that song or where that song is connected to some feeling or something, right? Trisha and I have a song that, you know, that we share between us. It's, it's, it's a, you know, a love song. And so when I hear that song played, my, my mind is enraptured with just visions of Patricia, like all the moments we've had in our life, right? 
This is what music does. It moves people. It's created by God to move people. But it, like any tool that God gives us, it can be misused. And so uh, Finney would play on the emotions of the congregation in song. He would especially do this in his preaching. And most of all, he would do it with emotionally driven altar calls. Finney was quoted, he, he, one of Finney's quotes about this was, he says, yes, the Spirit works, but we must work first. Do you see how that is backwards? Yes, the Spirit works, but we must work first. So this makes God dependent upon us for all things pertaining to our godliness. It puts man first. He must move if God is going to move. And so contemporary worship takes shape in light of early Western Pentecostalism and revivalism. It, it has been a wide-sweeping movement over the last several decades now. Throughout church history, worship, has, uh, sorry, worship was understood as the entire Lord's Day service. We, that's why we call this our worship service. When we come together to worship God, it's not that we just come together to sing. We come to sing, yes, but we come to pray together. We come to hear the Word taught. We come to preach the Word. We come to read the Scriptures. We come to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper like we'll do today. We come for baptisms when we have those. All right, there's lots of things about, there's, there's several things that go into a worship service. But the emphasis in contemporary worship is, is on the worshiper. It, it, it's, it's on the, the song part of the service especially. And so the emphasis is taken off of the one being worshipped and it's put on the one who is worshipping. Songs are written and performed in such a way as to stir up the emotions of the worshipper, to manipulate their feelings so that they feel like they have worshipped which might lead to a greater response during the altar call if a church has one. And largely, it's emotional manipulation. Most of us have been discipled in this. Most of us just this is learned behavior. And so I don't really blame congregations for this. I blame leaders for this. I blame pastors for this. It, it happens in churches across the globe. It happens in churches across our county. It's happening right now. I've attended several of these churches in my time in Magnolia, which is my life. <laughs> the service starts large, often with an upbeat song, it's a song of praise, it, then it moves into a slower song, and then oftentimes an even more slower song, which is called a worship song. The first song is a praise song. These songs are now worship songs. And before, uh, it, it might, it'll finally wrap up with a fourth song that is either another upbeat song or a slow song, depending on what is planned for the sermon that day. And so the transition to the sermon becomes easier based on what kind of song you end with. And when the preacher is finished, you sing something like, Just As I Am, 17 times until people respond to the preacher's call appropriately, right? Until the Spirit has moved. I can remember sitting in worship services and, and the preacher saying, you know, at 12.15, after he's preached, after we've sang, more, more singing is happening, more calling upon the Holy Spirit to move on us is happening. And he's saying, we're not leaving this place until we sense the presence of the Spirit. It's wrong. It's false teaching. It's ungodly. It's, it's sacerdotalism, really, is what it is. It's and, and that means that it is, um, 
it's all about the emotions of something, and you're having to, or sacra, sacramentalism, sorry. It's all about the, the things that are being performed to make the certain experience happen. It's Roman Catholic in approach is what it is. And so the service starts that way and ends that way, and the result is emotionally manipulated people go away thinking that they have experienced God, possibly even responding to what they think or they're told is faith in Jesus because they raised their hand and the preacher prayed a congregational prayer over them. And then what happens? These people who have this emotional, stirred-up experience flame out at some point because emotions don't last. You can't carry that emotional high into the rest of your life. That emotional high was caused by everything happening in that service that forced that person to make that decision. And you can't maintain that in your daily lives. The Christian life, as we say around here, as uh, Eugene Peterson once said, it's, it's a long obedience in the same direction. Right? It's, it's day after day waking up and living for the Lord. It's showing up to worship services and worshiping God with the congregation. It's not about stirring up emotions. There are emotions that go into it. Absolutely. Absolutely there are emotions that go into it. Charles Finney also said this. He said, a revival is not a miracle. What? A revival is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is purely philosophic. That means it's scientific. It can be figured out. It's the result of the right use of the constituted means. What's he saying? You get all the right elements together, you get all the right pieces together, and you perform them in the exact way you will have revival. We see this today as churches still practice planned revivals, weekly revivals, doing a lot of the same things that they would say they disagree with. The emotions of such worship might be good, or the motivation, sorry, of such worship may be good, but there's a better way. There's a far better way. There's God's way to doing this. The problem with such worship is that man is the standard of worship. He is the center of worship. You're starting with the congregation and you're saying, let's do what he or she needs to have an emotional experience. You're starting with the leaders who are saying, we need to make this happen. It's manipulated for man's purposes, not God's purposes. These people are not truly trying to build the kingdom of God. Man cannot be the standard of godly worship, because godly worship is decided by God alone. Jonathan Cruz wrote this in a book. He said, worship is meaningful, not because of what we do, but because of what God is doing in and through us by His Spirit. Therefore, we must not only sanctify our lives, we must sanctify our worship also. Like none of us disagrees that our lives should be sanctified, that we should be putting away sinful thoughts. Like if you've got a problem with lust, you should put that away, right? None of us is going to argue that. If you've got a problem with anger, you're angry at a brother, you're angry at a sister, you're like you should put that away. You've got a problem with bitterness, you should be depending upon the Lord to help you put that away, right? None of us is saying we shouldn't be sanctified, but when it comes to our worship, we often think there's no need to sanctify it. 
But it's not true. Like there's reason to grow in what we understand about God and how we worship God and to look into his word and see what it says about worship and to see is what we're doing aligning with what God's word says about worship. To let him sanctify our worship. And so I want to put before you today this really kind of basic big idea, but worshiping God his way is the most important thing you will ever do in your life. Learning how to worship God His way is the most important thing you will ever do in your life. In fact, you were created to worship. That's why God created you, was to be a worshiper. Romans 11.36 again says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That first phrase there, for from Him, from Him are all things. The Apostle Paul here is telling us that all things originate from God. From Him are all things. That means out of God comes all things. Things. This is what happens in creation. We'll look a little more at that in a moment. He is the source of all things. Amen? Through Him are all things. For from Him and through Him are all things. Through Him are all things. All things have their life and their function and their being because of God who created them. They came out of Him, and so therefore they exist, what? Through Him. He decides their existence. They have life because of Him. For from Him and through Him are all things. And so if it's from Him and it's through Him, then what's its end? It's to Him, right? To Him are all things. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. All things find their end in God. A plant that grows sprouts up from a seed or from something that was germinated, right? This plant springs forth out of the ground. What is it doing? It's worshiping God. It's doing exactly what it was created to do, right? It's living according to the will of God for its life. And so it exists, all creation exists unto God only. We might say it this way, God is the source, the life, and the end of all things. He's the source, the life, and the end of all things. To Him alone belongs the glory. Notice the Apostle Paul says, the glory. Not glory, but the glory. The Apostle is saying that supreme glory belongs to God, that all the glory belongs to the Lord. And so all of creation then is shouting forth the glory of God, because all of creation has come from God. All of creation is therefore worshiping God, if you'll pay attention. Like if you'll look around and notice creation, this is what creation is doing. And your life is no different. You were created to bring glory to God. You're created to worship the Lord. You were created to be uh, to, to be bringing forth into the world proper godly worship as we see in the Scriptures. 
One man's definition of worship is this. He says it's drawing near to communion with God through Christ in the Spirit by faith. That's important. You may write that down. Drawing near to communion with God through Christ in the Spirit by faith. It's Trinitarian in nature. This is true worship. We draw near to God through Christ in the Spirit by faith. It's not just that God said some things about worship. It's not just, it's not just that He's, you know, He might have some ideas about worship and now we get to do kind of whatever we want within worship and we can call that worship because, you know, anything that's done, you know, in the name of the Lord must be good, right? No. This is why there's false teachers and false teaching, right? It's not just, false teaching is not just other religions. That is false teaching, sure. But, but false teaching is that which looks Christian but is false in nature, right? And the Christian world is far more full of this than we might initially realize. Just because something bears the name Christian doesn't mean it's Christian. doesn't mean it's biblical, right? And so in the creation event that we see in the beginning of Genesis is the creation of worship. It's the genesis of worship. It's the foundation for worshipers. Over and again throughout God's Word, we see that the purpose of creation is to proclaim the glory of God. What are you doing when you proclaim the glory of God? You're worshiping, right? Perhaps Psalm 148, which Alan preached on last month, is one of the clearest pictures of this truth. Let me just read some of the verses. I probably won't read it all, but just for time's sake. But praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. And he gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hell, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and all flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for His name alone is exalted. His majesty is above heaven and earth. He has raised up a horn for His people. Praise for all His saints, for the people of Israel who are near to Him. Praise the Lord. I said I wouldn't read it all, but I got caught up in it, right? Psalm 148, what's the point of the psalm? Praise God. Why? Because from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. Right? This is why we praise the Lord. So worshiping God His way, again, is the most important thing you will ever do. And so when God makes mankind, we read this in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. So this is a Trinitarian creation. Let us make man in our own image after our likeness 
and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God is at day six. He's at the end of day six. Everything else on the earth has been created. And now he says, here's the crown jewel of creation, mankind in our image, male and female. For what purpose? To exercise dominion, to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth. What does that mean? To fill the earth with the glory of God. What does that mean? To be worshipers on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So to be created in the image of God is to bear the impress of your creator. It's like the impress of a, the idea here is like the impress of of, of a president on a coin, right? It bears the image of the creator, but it's not the creator, right? That coin bears the impress of a president, but it's not the president, right? Nobody's saying, hey, I'm hanging out with Abe Lincoln today, right? No, I got a penny in my pocket, right? So you are not the creator, but you bear the image of the creator. You're not the one worth worshiping, but you are the one created to be a worshiper. And he gave them the purpose of, of fruitfulness. Like you're meant to reflect the glory of God as a mirror reflects what's in its view, right? Again, a mirror gives a reflection of what it sees, but it is not what it sees, right? We wouldn't hold up a mirror and say, hey, this is Ben Brigham just because Ben's image is in it, right? But that's not how mirrors work. But it reflects the image of Ben, just as you were created to reflect the image of your creator, And so God made man to reflect his glory in all the earth. He gives him the purpose of fruitfulness, dominion, to carry that throughout the earth so that his glory would fill the earth. What does he do when he calls Israel? The nation of Israel was supposed to do what? Carry the glory of God into all the earth. Does Israel get it right? No. And and so the Old Testament is really all about the failure of Israel to carry and to image the glory of God. There's pockets of hope. There's remnants of hope. But ultimately, we're still looking for someone to do that. And so Christ comes. And so when God places the man into the garden, God, so he created him outside the garden. God takes Adam. I always kind of imagine that he's like just picking him up and placing him, but probably not how it worked, right? <laughs> Sounds good. But he takes Adam and he puts him into the garden. And in Genesis 2.15, he gives him instructions. He says that he is to work it and keep it. He's to work and keep the garden. An interesting thing about this phrase in Genesis 2.15 is that Moses later uses it to describe the work of the Levites intending to temple worship. They were to work it and keep it. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the Hebrew word for you, but it's the same phrase. So what was Adam created to do? He was created to be a priest on the earth to bear the image of God. In the same way that the priest later on would uh, carry the presence of God, would tend to his presence and to make sure that God's glory could be seen properly, that he could receive proper worship. This is what Adam was supposed to have done. And so in this, God not only created Adam to worship, but he told him how to worship. You're to work and keep. He's given him instructions for worship. Like, I've put you in my place. This is my sanctuary, so to speak. I've put you in my garden, but it's for my purposes. You're to work it and keep it. You're to cultivate it. You're to help it grow throughout the earth. 
It would happen through cultivation and protection that Adam would, would do this. And so in this, God would be glorified as Adam reflected the glory of God through his fruitful worship to God. But what happens in Genesis chapter 3? We've got the man and the woman created in Genesis 1. We see a close-up picture of what they were supposed to do and how they came to be. We see Adam created from the dust of the ground. Eve's created from his rib to be a helpmeet to Adam in working and keeping. And they were both to be fruitful, multiplied, to exercise dominion, subdue the earth, and fill the earth with the glory of the Lord. But in Genesis chapter 3, pure worship is disrupted by the founder of lies. The devil, in the form of a serpent, comes to Eve, who is Adam's wife, and he tempts her with the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So God had placed Adam in the garden. He gives him the command to work and keep, but he gives him the command also, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. She knows she's not supposed to eat of it. She even adds to the command, I'm not supposed to eat it, nor am I even supposed to touch it. The devil convinces her that this is simply the command of an egomaniacal God. This is a God who, um, who doesn't want you to be like him. But if you'll eat of that fruit, you'll be just like him, and you won't need him anymore. How many of us fall to the temptation to be our own God daily? take control of our own lives, to do what we think is best without ever considering the commands of God in Scripture. I'll raise my hand. I'm guilty of that. The serpent says to the woman, you will not surely die. I mean, I, can, I don't know if I'm getting the inflection right, but it just sounds like you know, he's appalled by the fact that she says, well, surely die. And he's like, you won't surely die. For God knows, this is him, he goes on, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be more like God. You will be like him, knowing good and evil. The woman hears this. and we read this, it says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so she hears what he's saying, and she turns and she looks at the fruit. She says, when she saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. That the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Again, this is the temptation of daily sin struggles. I, you know, you might know the commands of God. And you might be saying to yourself, no, I can't. I can't act this way or I can't do this thing or I can't pursue that desire because it goes against God's command. I know that. I've heard that my whole life. And then what happens? The tempter comes, right? The father of lies comes to you and he says, you won't surely die if you do that. God's trying to keep you from enjoyment. He's trying to keep you from being your own God. He doesn't want you to be like him. Like if you'll just pursue all the desires of your heart, guess what? You're God now. You're the God of your own life. This is the lie of the world. This is, what they're, this is what they're falling into so rapidly in our world. And so what we have here in Genesis chapter 3 is the origin of sin in mankind. It's the beginning of it. It's the genesis of sin. This is where godly worship gets disrupted. 
And so we read, we go on to read in the narrative, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord of uh, the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what's happened? Their eyes are opened. They were once, it's not that they were blind, they were once pure. They were once holy as God is holy. They were once without sin, but now their eyes have been opened to evil. Why? Because they experienced evil. They committed evil. They committed transgression against God, and now they know it. And they knew that they were naked, it says. They were exposed before God. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the Lord coming. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the, Lord, of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So again, here we see the genesis of things like shame and regret and blame shifting and deceit, right? Which we're all so well acquainted with now. Like if we're honest, we're very good at all of these things. Natural to us. Like we were born this way or something. The man and the woman are no longer an unblemished image of the glory of God as they were created. Created to mirror the image of the glory of God in all the earth, they are now broken mirrors. The Bible helps us see this. Just two chapters later, after Adam and Eve are sent out of the garden, we read this in Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. This is verses 1 through 3. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. You see the differences there. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of who? God. Then Adam fathered a son in whose likeness? His own likeness, after his own image. Mankind still bears the image of their creator, but it's a broken image. It's, a, it's marred by sin. Romans 5.12 further clarifies this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, which is Adam, this chapter makes it clear that it's Adam, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are bearing the image of God anymore perfectly. Especially so as unbelievers. We are marred by our sinful nature, which, are inherit which is inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve. We are broken mirrors. We are guilty of sin. Alan just mentioned last week that we're all worshiping something. We're all devoted to something. Some may worship false gods of their own imaginations, of their own creations, and some may worship the one true God of the Bible, but no one is indifferent. There's no neutrality in this. You are worshiping something. Everyone lives their life in devotion to something, and whatever that is, it is their God. You might be what you're devoted to most, and so you are your own God. It might be something else. It may be your spouse. It may be your children. 
You may be saying, everything I do is for these people. And while that's a noble concept, you're making your wife or your spouse, your husband, you're making them God. You're making your children God. Maybe it's your career. You think, this is who I am. You're making it God. Maybe it's your addictions, your sin struggles. I, I am a believer, but I'm also a whatever, an alcoholic or a recovering alcoholic or same-sex attracted, but I'm a Christian. You know, like what you're doing is you're making those things God. Adam and Eve were created to worship God by eternally dwelling in the presence of God, joyfully doing the will of God, spreading the glory of God into all the earth, but their sin got them removed from the garden. Verses 22 through 24 there in Genesis 3, just a few verses later we read this. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And God just breaks his thought there. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. They were forever barred from entering the place of God that God had given them. Adam and Eve leave the fruitful garden and embark on a new, far more difficult journey to become image bearers for the glory of God in the earth. And if that were like the totality of the historical narrative of our first parents, like this is all we had, we would be filled with discouragement and hopelessness. And rightfully so, for in that existence, an existence separated from the presence of God, in that existence where you're in your sin, there is no way to return to God in proper worship. They're barred forever. There's no way for us to commune with him because of our sin. Our sin also removes us from the presence of God. And if that's true, if we've been forever removed from the presence of God, then why in the world are we gathered together right now at this place and in this time? Why do we gather? Why do we show up for corporate worship on the Lord's Day each week? Because we know we know, brothers and sisters, that God did not leave us in our sin. He has not left us without a way to return to Him in proper worship. Amen? So look back with me at Genesis chapter 3. Let's look a little closer at what happened here. Because I believe that here, God has established for us the outline for what happens in worship from the very beginning of time. But the true worship only happens in God's way, which he reveals here in his word. And we'll see it over and again throughout the scriptures as we go through the series. We see the same pattern. The first thing we see is that God initiates. God initiates worship. It happens on God's terms. After their sin, Adam and Eve are not seeking God. They're naked and ashamed, right? What are they doing? Are they running for the Lord somewhere? No. They're looking for ways to cover themselves with loincloths, right? They're trying to cover their shame. They're trying to hide their sin. They're trying to make themselves presentable. Instead of running to their creator, begging for his forgiveness and pardon, they cover themselves in fig leaves. I'm here to tell you this is the pattern of all of humanity. 
No one seeks God. No one seeks God. This is what Isaiah says. This is what Romans chapter 3 is saying. There is none righteous, no, not one. No one seeks after God. It is God who seeks. So what does God do? Look at verse 8 and 9 again. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God did what? He ignored them and just passed on by? No. The Lord God called to the man. He said to him, where are you? You see, God seeks out the man and the woman. Though they have blasphemed his name, they've rebelled against him. In true worship, God comes to his people. The people do not first perform for him, and then he shows up, as Finney says. Rather, they come because he calls them. This is why we begin the service with a call to worship. The call isn't about us reciting something out of dead, rote, religious activity. It's about acknowledging that we are here because God calls us to worship him. We can come to worship because God has called us to come. He draws us in, and we respond in obedience. We come. And though he calls us and we come, this is not the end of it. We still cannot worship him properly because our sin remains and he is perfectly holy and just and cannot approve of our sin. The second thing we see is that we acknowledge our sin. We must acknowledge our sin. What happens next in the narrative is not a restoration of fellowship. God talking to the man saying, where are you? And the man answering back. This is not fellowship yet. This is not them dwelling together in harmony yet. This is not peace with God. That's why the man's hiding and eventually he's going to go on to make excuses. He's not at peace with God yet. He's still afraid of God because of his sin. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, no, 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 no. The woman who you, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So who's at fault in Adam's mind? Who? The woman? No. God. He is accusing God of causing his misfortune. Right? The woman whom who gave? You gave to me. Sure, Eve disobeyed. Eve offered the fruit. Adam took of it. But who's he blaming right here? He's not blaming the woman. And he is in a sense, but he's blaming God. The woman you gave me did this. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. As noted earlier, this is the beginning of regret and shame and blame shifting. It's the, regret of, it's the, the origin of sin Really, what's on display here is pride, unchecked pride. The woman you gave me. It's your fault, God. You're the reason I'm in sin here. It was better off. I was better on my own. Mm -mm. There's more than that happening here, though, than just the regret and the shame and the blame shifting that we see. This is more than a kid getting caught with his hand in the cookie jar, right? 
I wasn't, I was, I was cleaning it, you know, right. just making sure there were cookies in it for later, mom. What God is doing here is he's asking, what are you, what, where are you? What have you done? God is pronouncing his righteous judgment on the man and the woman. They are guilty of sin. And let me tell you something, God means for them to understand it deeply. There is no good news of the gospel here yet. This is, you are in rebellion against my decree. You have sinned against the holy God. Why have you done this? We might all look at ourselves in the mirror one day and ask the same things. Because we're all guilty of treason against God, rebelling against him. And so God is pronouncing his righteous judgment. They're guilty of it. He means for them to see it. Their hearts are foul. Their sin has blemished them forever. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Did God God really have to ask? I mean, is God limited in any kind of a way at all? No. You guys know this, right? The one who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, right? Right? That he didn't have a substance that he created these things out of. He spoke them into being by the power of his voice. Did he really need to know what happened? Of course he didn't. He's an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God. From the depths of the ocean to the heights of the heavens, from the one corner of creation to the opposite corner of creation, there is nothing hidden from the sight or the knowledge of God. Everything, what? Exists from him and through him and to him. It's all his. Nothing's hidden. So he knew what Adam and Eve had done. He knew exactly what they did. And he pronounces his verdict in verses 16 and 19. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desires shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Sin, sin marred the very things that they were created to be doing. Eve is created because God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'm going to create for him a helpmeet. Eve is created to image the glory of God in creation, and she aids the man in fruitfulness as a helpmeet and mother And she's now going to have desires that are contrary to her design. Namely, she will want to rule over him. Her desire will be for him. By the way, we might say hello to the foundation of the feminist movement, right? That's what this is. Adam, created to image the glory of God in creation as he works and keeps the fruitful garden, the place that God gave to him with the help of his wife, will now have to work against thorns and thistles by the sweat of his brow until he returns to the dust that he was created from. 
Adding insult to injury, God will send them out of the garden. Struggle and toil and strife will be their future. Decay, destruction, and death will mar creation for the rest of time that the earth exists. This is the pronouncement of judgment. And Adam and Eve have heard clearly. The third thing that happens in worship is that God provides atonement. God provides atonement. God initiates his plan of redemption in his curse on the serpent, which I intentionally did not read yet, but here you are, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Though the serpent deceived the woman... The serpent thinks, I've won the day, the victory is mine, I've caused the fall of God's crown jewel of creation, the ones who were meant to bear his image no longer bear his image perfectly, they're marred by sin. They're like me, they're liars and deceivers. But the victory we see here will ultimately belong to God, because God and the offspring of the man and the woman will come, in the offspring of the, of the man and the woman, one will come who will bruise the head of the serpent, though he himself will be bruised in the process. The bruised head of the serpent is a death blow dealt by the one whose heel will be bruised in the process. But a bruised heel and a bruised head are not the same thing. Amen? You can stub your toe, and that's different than if something falls on your head, right? Ultimately, there's going to be one who brings the death of death. His heel will be bruised in the process, but he will deal a death blow to death. This verse is called the Proto-Evangelium. It is the first proto-pronouncement of the gospel or good news, Evangelium. God is foreshadowing the provision of atonement. He's foreshadowing the coming of Christ by his incarnation through the seed of the woman, through the Spirit's conception in Mary. Christ is the offspring who will cut off the head of the serpent, and he does so on the cross. Amen? On the cross, Christ became sin for us who knew no sin. Sorry, he became sin who knew no sin for us so that by faith in him, we who knew nothing but sin might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 All who call on the name of the Lord by faith in Christ's death and his resurrection will be saved. Romans 10.9 Genesis 3.21 says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now this is right before, so they're trying to make fig leaves, which is what we do in our own righteousness, which is filthy rags, right? They're trying to sew together loincloths and like cover themselves. And God says, no, 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 no. Where I'm sending you out there, you're going to need a different kind of clothing. And so he clothes them in animal skins, which is really just a further foreshadowing of uh, of believers who are ultimately being clothed in the righteousness of Christ by faith. It's foreshadowing, taking their awful clothing, removing it from them and giving them proper clothing, which is what we see of those who are worshiping at the end of Revelation. They're dressed in the robes that Christ has adorned them with, the righteousness of him. Fourth thing we see is that we commit ourselves to him. Adam and Eve, faced with their sin, but hearing the promise of God to crush the serpent, 
commit themselves to God. In Genesis 3.20, look what it says. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Adam knew that life, because of the promise that God made and the curse to the serpent, he makes a promise to mankind. And because of that promise, Adam knows that my wife is now the mother of all living. Like She is the reason. The seed that carries on through her is going to be the reason that uh, life is restored to mankind. We know death now, but we will know life again. Though they had sinned against God and received death, that is sin uh, came into their life. It's death in that way, but it's also the end of life at some point. It would not last forever. And so he calls his name wife Eve, his wife's name Eve to commemorate this. The fifth thing we see is that we feast in communion with God. They now have communion with God again. Though that was disrupted by Cain's murder of his brother Abel, all hope is not lost, right? We'll, we'll see this right here in Genesis chapter 4, which comes on the tail, the, these last few verses come on the tail end of the story of Cain and Abel. So Adam and Eve had two sons. One gets jealous of the other because his offering was received by the Lord because it was made in the right way. Cain tried to worship in the wrong way. God didn't receive his offering, and he gets jealous. So what does he do? He goes and kills his brother. And in verses 25 through 26, after Cain is banished, he's gone now to go do his thing. And you read about all the destruction that's going to come from him in the future. Verse 25, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, meaning they conceived again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. She's holding on to this hope of the offspring in Genesis 3.15. Instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And, and if you track it, you trace it. In the genealogies, all those things we skip and read, Christ comes from the line of Seth. I mean, it's a whole long line, but it's there. In the same way, oh, and, and, then, so, and then it says, to Seth also was born, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Praise God. God's in the cool of the day, wandering through the garden, Adam and Eve have sinned. What does he do? He calls on them. And now here we see the people calling on the name of the Lord in proper worship, restored fellowship. They're in communion with God again by faith. We come to see that fleshed out in Abraham in chapters 12 and on in Genesis. So in the same way, we have communion with God today through faith in Christ. So the pictures become clearer and clearer through the years, <laughs> through Revelation. Um, because of the atonement that Christ, the seed, the, the offspring of, uh, of who Christ is and how he dealt a death blow to Satan. And so we can dwell with God each day. We can live for God. We can be in communion with God. The sixth thing we see is that he sends us. Again, we're, we're kind of describing the flow of a worship service. We're describing the flow of worship in the Bible. The six elements of this, six parts of this, is that he sends us. God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, committed to God, they would be able to live for him once again by faith. We see this in their children and the fact that the people began to call upon the name of the Lord in that day or at that time. Adam and Eve must have been cultivating and guarding a devotion to God that others were beginning to do also, carried on through their son. And so weekly worship is a reenactment of this shape that God calls us, the verdict is pronounced, 
Atonement is seen in Christ. We commit ourselves to Him, and He sends us. Amen? It's a reenactment of this gospel shape that God provides here in Genesis, and we'll see it throughout the Scriptures. You'll begin to see this take shape as we go through this. So you see, worship does not begin with man as the standard. If man were the standard, we get it wrong. Man cannot be the standard because he is sinful and corrupt. God and his word are the standard for worship. Everything we do in worship must be held accountable to God's word. More than that, everything we do in worship must be derived from his word. And not everything we do in worship, just because we think it's good and right, means that it's good and right in the sight of God. In the coming weeks, we'll look more at the theology and the elements of a worship service. But for now, we must understand that worship is drawing near to communion with God through Christ in the Spirit by faith. That is to worship God's way. And it is the most important thing you will ever do. So I ask you, brothers and sisters, in what ways does your life not reflect true godly worship? In what ways are your heart, is your heart devoted to your own desires or the desires of others? In what ways have you ignored God daily in your life? In what ways have you, like the Proverbs said, become, has your belly become your God? Meaning you go the way of your own desires, your own appetites. you today to answer the call of God, to repent of your sins, to commit yourself to Christ-centered worship, and to allow Him to send you out as you fellowship with Him. Amen. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these men and women. I thank you, Lord, for your word and your faithfulness to us. Lord, would you help us to worship you correctly. Help us worship you properly in the ways that you have designed and the ways that you have made clear in your word. Father, we recognize that you call us. You call us. And so therefore we come. We love because you first loved us. You have called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. You have pulled us up from the miry clay and given us a rock to stand on. We owe everything to you. If we are saved, it is because of Christ, it is because of your call, it is because of your actions, not our own. There is no way to fellowship with you apart from faith. And so, Lord, would you deepen our faith? Would you strengthen our faith that we might worship you more completely, more fully, that we might exercise a deeper devotion to you? that we might not sin against you by going the way of our own bellies, seeking out our own desires. Help us to depend on Christ alone. Lord, we love you. We praise you for your word. I thank you for your spirit which convicts, your spirit which leads, your spirit which teaches us by your word, trains us by your word, reproves us, corrects us by your word, so that we might grow in faith. Help us to be holy, Father, as you are holy. We thank you for your word. In Christ's name I pray.
Amen.